Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Before we get started, it's almost time to wrap up the year, and we want to take on your questions. Whatever you've been wondering about the economy, companies, stocks, bonds, or markets in general, we want to know. Send us a note or a voice memo recording to takeontheweek at wsj.com or leave a voicemail at 212-416-3489. We might include your question in a special end-of-the-year episode. I'm Telus Demos for The Wall Street Journal, filling in for Dion Rabowin, and this is WSJ's Take on the Week, the show where we break down the most important things to watch in business and financial news. We cut through the noise to get you ready for what matters. Just a couple of months ago, all anyone could seem to talk about in the markets was the march toward higher interest rates and borrowing costs. The yield on the benchmark 10-year treasury touched 5% back in October. Mortgage rates hit 8% by some measures. Now, it's a very different story. Investors increasingly seem to think that we're finally seeing the retreat of inflation and, in turn, the peak of interest rates. That 5% treasury yield has gotten a lot closer to 4%. Average mortgage rates are still pretty high, but they've been dropping. Along the way, there's been a big rally in the stock market. The S&P 500 is now on track for a roughly 20% gain this year, reversing its nearly 20% decline last year. But a few things are still nagging at investors. For one, the stock market has been really reliant on a handful of technology stocks, what many call the Magnificent Seven, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, NVIDIA, Tesla, and Meta. Without their gains, the S&P 500 would be up less than 10% this year. And no one is really quite sure yet about what the Federal Reserve is going to do next. Its next interest rate decision will be this week. The market expects it to hold current levels steady. But could the central bank actually cut rates next year? Or could it still keep trying to constrain the economy in some other way? We'll talk to someone who can explain some more subtle ways in which the Fed might go about doing that and make it a lot harder for investors to settle in for a long winter's nap. But before we do that, let's talk about something that has played a big part in fueling that rally in those seven tech stocks. Artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence or AI, has been a mega-theme for investors this year. The emergence of tools such as ChatGPT has fueled expectations that AI could drive productivity gains, but also raise the fear that some people might lose their jobs. Shares of NVIDIA, which makes chips that power AI computing, have tripled this year. Microsoft and Google parent Alphabet, which are developing tools to make AI accessible, are both up around 50% this year. We're also starting to see AI seep into our daily lives. One way has been through a stream of images, often in the form of social media memes. These are created by people giving text prompts to AI tools, which then spit out some pretty wild images. One company intimately associated with graphic design is Adobe, perhaps best known for its Photoshop software. It has its own AI strategy, and its shares are up more than 75% this year. It reports its latest quarterly earnings this week. To help us figure out what we're looking at when those numbers come out on Wednesday, I'm joined by Dan Gallagher. Dan is the Heard on the Street columnist who covers technology companies and trends. Dan, the advance of artificial intelligence is having a huge impact on technology companies across the board. 
What does it mean for a company like Adobe in particular? Well, it's potentially really big for Adobe because if you think about it, what Adobe's software does is it specially designed for people who create content. You know, we think of things like uh, Photoshop and Premiere and that all the all these things that are essentially kind of in this design creation space. And the whole point of generative AI, the stuff that ChatGPT made so popular, is that it's AI that actually helps in that creation process. So Adobe's reporting its earnings this week. Is the impact of AI on its business something that's theoretical, or are they already showing that they can make money from the tools that they've kind of put out there so far? They have tools out there now that they launch that um, are theoretically generating revenue. They haven't really given an earnings update since the main launch of these. Um, I don't think we're going to see necessarily a huge number in this quarter's earnings because this is for the quarter that just ended in November. These tools are still pretty early and Adobe didn't price them super cheap. So there's a surcharge involved for a lot of them. So I don't think we're going to see necessarily a blowout impact. I think what you're going to see with Adobe is when they report their earnings, they're also going to give a projection for the coming year. Um, and that may include, if that, especially if that's well above what you know Wall Street analysts are looking for, that could be an indication that they see some big um, uptake of generative AI already. It seems like the market isn't necessarily looking for how much money we've made, but investors will be looking at, does this have the potential to be really meaningful for its business? And it sounds like that's that's the case for Adobe. And they'll be looking for more of that type of context in the earnings report and a commentary around it, right? Yeah. And I think very broadly, like generative AI, as far as like its impact on for companies like Adobe and Microsoft that are selling like software tools with this capability, it's really a 2024 Um, factor is when you're going to have a full year when a lot of these tools are going to be available for sale for business customers and general customers to use. So a big part of what they're selling, um, because a lot of Adobe's revenue comes from, you know, business customers, people who are business users and pay for the software to make a business out of it, is Adobe's promising that the stuff you're going to create with their generative AI is going to be safe for your business to use. You're not using stuff that's accidentally pirated from somebody out there. So I think that that's a selling point for them. That's going to help them. So let's boil it down. What is one or two things that investors might want to look for in Adobe's earnings to get the the, the latest read on AI and the tech business? I think the main thing everybody's going to be focusing on is what Adobe says for its fiscal year 2024. Because um, the fourth fiscal quarter that they're about to report, you know, they pretty much confirm that. They don't tend to miss their estimates. I don't think there's really a lot of mystery there. The mystery is, are they going to show, and right now estimates for fiscal 2024, the official published estimates are not huge. Wall Street's modeling some revenue pickup compared to 2023, but I think if Adobe gives a really strong forecast, that's going to be seen as a read for, a strong read for AI. Um, And if it's more conservative, it'll probably cause some concern about, okay, are they being super conservative here on this? Um, But that's really like the, the fiscal 24 forecast is really what everybody's watching with Adobe. That was Heard on the Street's Dan Gallagher, who, I can assure you, is not AI-generated, no matter how smart he sounds. One thing that AI won't be doing anytime soon is setting monetary policy for the U.S. economy. We'll talk about what's next for the Federal Reserve and interest rates after the break.
Robert Half Research indicates nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Every month, investors and financial pundits make a big deal out of the Federal Reserve's next interest rate move. Up, down, or sideways, it's big news. But that headline interest rate target is just one way that the government can impact the direction of the markets, the economy, and the cost to borrow money. The government also sells bonds via the Treasury Department. Sometimes the Fed buys government bonds or, equally notably, stops buying them. These things can affect just how much money is sloshing around in the economy. And that, in turn, can affect how expensive or cheap it is for investors, companies, and consumers to get their hands on that money. This so-called plumbing of the financial system is extremely complicated, and most of us can usually safely ignore it. But when a pipe bursts, it can become a big deal for the stock and bond markets, too. So let's talk to someone who knows the difference between the financial equivalents of a flange and a gasket about the risks of a leak, or worse, as the Fed starts to pivot from raising interest rates to just maybe possibly considering lowering them. I'm joined by Mark Cabana, who's the head of U.S. rate strategy at B of A Securities, which is Bank of America's trading business. So the Federal Reserve is this week going to make its latest decision on the direction of interest rates. Most observers are expecting them to continue to keep holding the key federal funds rate target steady. But that rate target isn't the only way that the Fed can influence things. So, Mark, talk to us about the other tools that the Fed has been using to try and achieve the aims of slowing down the economy and controlling the growth of inflation. Sure. There's really two key means that the Fed has done that. One, through forward guidance, uh, and the second, through a reduction of their balance sheet. When the Fed provides forward guidance, they try and shift market expectations or guide market expectations towards their expected future policy decisions. Um, They can do this in a variety of ways. They can do it with language contained in the FOMC statement, or they can also do it through their summary of economic projections. And that is a document that they release quarterly that contains their own projections for growth, inflation, the unemployment rate, and importantly, where they expect the federal funds target rate to be set in years ahead. Forward guidance is really just uh, signaling to the market so that the market can uh, align its pricing with uh, Fed-expected intentions. The other way that the Fed can influence macroeconomic conditions is through their balance sheet policy. And the Fed has been reducing their balance sheet um, on a pretty steady pace since uh, the summer of 2022. Uh, The size of their balance sheet is now uh, smaller by over a trillion since they started this process. And when the Fed reduces the size of the balance sheet, it withdraws excess liquidity from the financial system. And it also adds to the total amount of collateral or treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that the private sector needs to hold. So... What's the right way to think about the Federal Reserve's balance sheet? What are the things that the Federal Reserve sort of owns? And then what are the things that the Federal Reserve owes to other people? So the Fed has a balance sheet, just like pretty much every other actor in the economy. But the big difference between the Fed and everyone else is that they're just so much bigger. Their balance sheet right now is in total size um, slightly below $8 trillion. 
Um, and on the Fed's balance sheet, um, on the asset side, they own um, primarily securities. They've bought treasury securities, they've bought mortgage-backed securities, and they also have some loans that they have made to primarily other financial institutions that reside on the asset side of their balance sheet. Now, on the liability side, uh, the Fed has a couple of things that everyone is familiar with but maybe hasn't really thought of in terms of the Fed's balance sheet. Number one, um, currency and circulation. So the cash money that you have in your wallets, the dollars that you hold, um, they all say you know, that they're a note of the Federal Reserve System, um, and that is actually a liability of the Fed. So that piece of paper is like a little tiny IOU from the Federal Reserve, basically. Correct. And it's backed by treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, primarily. The Fed also can create other forms of money. Um, they can create cash that commercial banks uh, hold with the Fed. We call those reserves. Or they can also uh, uh, create other liabilities, including money that is held by money market mutual funds um, and deposited with the Fed. And when the Fed shrinks their balance sheet, what they really do is that they allow um, both assets and liabilities to decline. They allow treasuries and mortgages that are maturing or being prepaid to roll off. Um, that reduces the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet. Then on the liability side, it will drain liquidity, really reserves that commercial banks hold or those uh, deposits that money market mutual funds make with the Fed or, or repos that um, those money market mutual funds do with the Fed. Uh, those will go down commensurately. And really what this does is that it drains liquidity out of the system. It adds more treasury or mortgage-backed securities that the private sector needs to hold. And all else equal, that will put modest upward pressure on treasury and mortgage rates, thereby um, raising borrowing costs for the government and individuals or corporates that are tied to that, um, and also thereby uh, modestly decelerate the mortgage market. And then money becomes more expensive, essentially, right? That's right. And this is all okay. a part of uh, you know, the Fed trying to cool the economy and lower inflation. So let's bring us now to like sort of what's happening in the present. We've been talking about how you know, interest rates have been high, inflation has slowed. And so now the expectation is that the Federal Reserve is essentially you know, starting to maybe think about uh, not increasing rates any further and maybe even at some point in the future lowering interest rates. Basically, the Fed doesn't necessarily feel like it has to be so aggressive in trying to control the economy to bring down inflation. What does it mean for the Fed's, you know, willingness to buy treasury bonds or otherwise try and shrink the amount of money that's sloshing around in the system? Does it mean they can stop doing that too? It's an open question for them. Um, if they're going to be cutting interest rates or lowering interest rates, it's an open question as to what they want to do with their balance sheet policy. Chair Powell and other senior officials uh, have suggested that the Fed can certainly cut rates and still allow the balance sheet to, uh, to, to shrink in size. But they can also stop the balance sheet reduction if they're cutting interest rates. Uh, and we think that this determination or this decision will primarily depend upon how fast or slow is the economy moderating. Um, if the economy encounters a sharp recession, then I think it would be sensible for the Fed to consider stopping the balance sheet uh, reduction as they cut rates. Uh, but if it's a so-called soft landing and if the economy still remains reasonably healthy but inflation is just coming down, then they might consider allowing the balance sheet um, to continue to contract. Okay, so like we said, the Federal Reserve probably won't make like a big headline change when it meets and talks about the decision this week. What would surprise you about what the Fed 
does or says this week, even if, you know, the headline in the newspaper is Fed doesn't change? Well, the way that I think about this is I'll be looking for really two different things. Number one, signals about the path of the federal funds target range. And two, signals about what their intentions are with balance sheet policy. Um, On the path of the federal funds target range, we will get two bits of information that are very relevant. Uh, Number one, we're going to see updated economic projections from the Fed that also include uh, their projected outlook for the federal funds target range. Uh, And two, we will hear from Chair Powell and we can focus on the nuances of his communication to try and get a better read for where the balance of Fed officials uh, believe policy should go. That was Mark Cabana of B of A Securities. When we come back, we'll chew on something a little more familiar, Americans' love of eating at restaurants. High inflation has impacted many of us. But what happens when prices go up 55, 67, or even 276%? It makes living more costly. It eats into your paycheck. At the end of the day, the salary itself, it's not enough. And money quickly loses value. You can't save, you can't do anything. Check out our complete series on extreme world inflation from A to Z, from What's News, plus other exclusive content on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. Here's one more thing to keep an eye on this week. Darden Restaurants reports earnings this Friday. You may not have heard of Darden, but there's a good chance you've eaten at one of the company's restaurants. Olive Garden, Longhorn Steakhouse, Ruth's Chris, Cheddar's, and more. Americans, of course, didn't do much going out to restaurants in 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic started. But they made up for that with a vengeance in 2021 and 2022, when restaurant spending and foot traffic surged. That splurge is slowing down this year. But given what's going on with inflation and with people's general economic malaise these days, the willingness to spend on dining has seemingly held up pretty well, all things considered. What's going on? It might just be something happening in our culture. American Express has said that travel and entertainment spending on restaurants is especially key for its customers under age 35. Younger people seem to enjoy not just the, you know, food part of going out to a restaurant, but the social element, too. Those Instagram posts or TikTok videos you see of the inside of a sandwich or a heaping pile of pasta, they're a business story, too, says the journal's restaurant reporter, Heather Haddon. Increasingly, these restaurants know they need to market to Gen Z and younger consumers because those are their future um, diners for many years and years, and it's just become an important demographic for them. These are folks that have disposable money to spend, and restaurants really are discretionary spending. So we'll see what Darden's numbers for restaurant traffic can tell us about just how hungry the young American consumer is to keep feeding the economy. And that's everything you need to know to take on the week for Sunday, December 10th. The show is produced by Jess Jupiter. Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer. Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers. Michael also wrote our theme music. Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer. Scott Salloway and Chris Zinsley are the deputy editors. And Falana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. For even more, head to WSJ.com. I'm Telus Demos. Thanks for listening.
This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.